0: Welcome to Son of a Preacher Man with Jonathan Martin, a new podcast that's all about finding beauty and brokenness, grace and grit, God and the ambiguity of the in between. This episode is a sermon that Jonathan preached in Fresno, California at Prodigal Church on the topic of deconstruction. We hope this episode finds you well in your process of building and rebuilding. We hope that you will join us for side B, where Jonathan will answer your own questions and go deeper into the idea of deconstructionism. Enjoy.
1: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, and everybody said, amen. So if it's all right with you, I'll just kind of dive right into the deep end, and we'll get to know each other more as we go. The text I want to share with you is a story that I I dearly love. It's a story of these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. I guess around Easter of last year, um, I felt like to the best that I can discern these things, I really felt like God dealt with me around this text. And it's shifted my perspective on some things. It's shifted my perspective on some of the things that we're seeing happen in culture right now, some of the things I feel like are happening with the church. And just, I don't know, just felt like this is the right thing to share with you. I'm actually using my phone for scripture, which somehow, you have to understand, I always refer to myself as a hillbilly Pentecostal. I grew up in like sweat and sawdust kind of tent revivals is where I come from. And I just need to say that somehow when I read scripture from my phone, which I don't do normally when I'm preaching, it feels uniquely not anointed in some way. So I hope that, I hope I'm not hindering the spirit by using my electronic device. But um, I don't think that's actually a thing. Uh, Luke 24, beginning with verse 13, if you want to follow with me. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. We'll stop right there for right now. So the thing that I felt the Lord gave me a few months ago that I'd never seen in this text before, as many times as I've read it, as much as I've loved it, these two disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus. But what had always escaped me before is that they're walking away from Jerusalem. Now you have to keep in mind that these disciples, like all the earliest followers of Jesus, do not yet understand themselves to be part of a new religion. They understand themselves to be part of a renewal movement within Judaism that recognizes Jesus as Messiah. And they had placed all of their hopes and dreams on that reality that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus would be the one to redeem Israel. That, that is why they had upended their entire lives. That's why they, uh, these fishermen put down their nets and left homes and livelihoods, to follow this Jesus for three years. He's been everything to them. And now Jerusalem, which is the holy city for all Jewish people, it's where the temple is, and it's therefore the place all of their lives, not just spiritually but culturally, everything about who they are and what they are as a people is oriented around the temple and is oriented around Jerusalem as the holy city. Jerusalem is the sacred site, Jerusalem is the consecrated place. But now Jerusalem, which has been the holy place, which has been the sacred city, which has been the temple around which they've oriented their entire lives, is now the same place where they've seen Jesus of Nazareth tortured and killed. So that ground that once was consecrated has now been desecrated. This place that once was the source of such great consolation is now a place only identified with desolation. Some of us know uniquely what this is like. People who um, grew up in the context of a church community and had a really difficult, bruising experience. People that I know in my life who had a space that they thought was safe and sacred and ended up being physically abused in some way, maybe emotionally abused. Um, Maybe you felt betrayed in that kind of space. Some of us have had that kind of experience in a context that's not religious at all. Um, You you know what it's like to have a, a home that was once a safe space, but then all of a sudden the world's been turned upside down, and the relationship is falling apart and everything looks and feels different. It's interesting how a place that at one time felt like home and at one time felt like the realization of some kind of a dream can turn into a nightmare in such a short period of time. But when they see Jesus of Nazareth killed in the holy city, does it feel holy anymore? Does it feel sacred? The sacred space is not a safe space for them anymore. So my read of this text, is that as these two disciples are walking to Emmaus, the walk away from Jerusalem is significant. Because in their minds, I believe, since they think we've wasted these last three years, the very fact that Jesus could be killed shows he he was not the Messiah. All of this has been in vain. I am convinced that they think they're walking away from God. They think they're walking away from their faith. And here's where this text gets really exciting to me. In a way they are. In a way they really are. In a way they are walking away from the faith that they once knew. In a way they'll never go back. There are some experiences of death. There are some experiences of darkness. There are some experiences of crucifixion that mark you so profoundly. They will never go back to Jerusalem in the same... They will go back, but not in the same way that they did before. Home's not going to be home in the same way after what they've experienced. In a way, they really are walking away from the faith and from the God they knew or that they thought they knew. But here's what's so wild about this, and let's, uh, let's go back to the text here for just a moment. So they're, they're, they're walking down this road together, verse 14 says, they're talking with each other about the things that had happened. And part of what I love about this is that keep in mind that what that means here, as this will become more clear as we read a little bit later actually, but they're they're just talking about their despair. They're just talking about their disappointment and their disillusionment. They're just talking about how awful this is, what they've seen. What are we going to do now? They're not attempting to have a spiritual conversation. Their hearts are not inclined towards God. Everything is in despair. And yet, while they're having this conversation where they're vulnerably sharing their pain. Verse 15 says, while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, y'all got to let me preach about just that for for just a minute. I am convinced that vulnerability draws the presence of God. I mean, I know God is always with us, but I'm talking about like the, the manifest presence of God, the sense of God's presence. I believe that vulnerability does that like draws the presence of God like a moth does flame. You don't have to be trying to be spiritual. You don't have to be looking for Jesus. When people get vulnerable enough, when people get unguarded enough, when your heart is exposed, when your soul is exposed with another human being and there's an honest sharing of pain, you're inviting the presence of God whether you mean to or not. You're cracking a door open for the Holy Spirit, with or without your explicit consent. This is why I think vulnerability is so important. I know vulnerability is kind of a buzzword now, so I wish I had something else. Authenticity, fill it in. I, but I don't. For me, this is more than a buzzword because what I find is that, you know, man, I'm really convinced. A lot of people land in bars and spending a lot of time in bars looking for an experience that they weren't quite able to get in church. (laughs) They wanted a safe place where they could be vulnerable. They wanted a place where they could be open. But when, once again, sacred spaces are not safe places and that's not space to be vulnerable, well, sometimes you wanna go where everybody knows your name (laughs) and they're always glad you came. Nobody under my age has any idea what I'm referencing right now know you can talk honestly about your troubles to a bartender but sometimes a lot of times people come to church everything's so buttoned up and so polished what I na- it's what I love so much about even the fact that the name of your church is prodigal church how wonderful is that because there's the kind of authenticity in the name there's an embrace of the grit of real life in the name I just think people are so hungry for that and I'm not trying to be overly provocative this morning but I'll tell you what I really think and again, I'm not, I'm not trying to send you out to the, to the bar, but here's my, this is my honest riff. I think people who are vulnerable in a bar are inevitably closer to Jesus than people who are not vulnerable in a church. That's what I think. Because, and six people are like, yes, that's good. Thank you, guys. Y'all are my people. But do you hear what I'm saying? Because, like, because I just think vulnerability is that important. When your defenses are down and you're open about the depths of the pain of your own story, all of a sudden there's room for God to work. No matter what you think about God, no matter what your opinion is about Jesus, no matter what your doctrine or dogma is, if you get broken open enough, you're in severe danger that Jesus just may appear. But what happens, I believe for us, as it does with these disciples, is that in the midst of their vulnerability, their brokenness, their pain, Jesus comes up and starts walking alongside them, but they don't recognize him. First, they don't know. He just looks like a stranger. They don't know what's happening, but God is walking with them. They are walking down this long, dark road, contemplating their despair over the death of God, and God is walking beside them and they just aren't yet quite able to see. One of the things I love most about this text, and I don't know how you feel about this, but if you read the Gospels at all, I'm convinced this bears out. If you don't see it this way, you're just wrong. <laughs> I like that? Man, Jesus has, got, has seriously got some mischief going on. Like, the, the, he's so mischievous. Do you know what I'm talking about? God is mischievous. Jesus has this way of punking people. You know what I mean when I say that? Resurrection is so often like a way of God punking us. Especially as we read a little bit further, you'll see what I mean. Like, there is no way that this text... I don't even think I'm uh, reading this end of the text retrospectively in some weird way. Like, I, so much of this, I'm convinced, is meant to be funny. It has to be. I mean, if you don't believe me, let's tr- go back there for a moment. So verse 16, their eyes are kept from recognizing him. And in verse 17, he, the stranger... It was Jesus, says to them, What are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him. Now I want you to think about this question. Cleopas asked Jesus, the one who has just been tortured and killed on the cross, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place in these days. I don't know if you ever watch The Office or anything else that kind of has kind of an awkward humor to it, but this is the height of that, that sort of awkward office style humor to me. That they're walking alongside the one who's been tortured and crucified. Are you the only person here who hasn't heard what's happened? And here is the comic genius of Jesus and the comic timing of Jesus. If you you don't think Jesus is funny, I don't know a better place to point you from here because I think this is the best example of the comic timing of Jesus in the Gospels. It's so brilliant. Jesus' response is two words. For me, is devastating. Have you not heard the things that have happened in these days? Jesus says, what things? (laughs) Isn't that amazing? Am I the only person who thinks this is amazing? What things? I mean, do you, are you reading the subtext here? Whatever do you mean? Something's some happened in the last few days? Oh, tell me more. <laughs> I mean, it's fantastic. He, he, has, he asks as if he has no idea what they're talking about. But listen to this, verse 19. They replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth... Who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. How our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things took place. Stop one more time. I have, ever since I read this text again April of last year, I've been grappling with this question, which was something, whenever I read this story before, I always drove by. As the disciples are explaining to Jesus their desolation and despair, how heartbroken and disappointed they are, they say to him, we had hoped. We had thought that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. That was their hope. They knew according to their own ancient text that a Messiah, an anointed one, would come. And the expectation was the way that they read their own tradition, the way that they read their own prophets, was that Jesus was going to come, that a Savior was going to come, a Messiah, who was going to come and vindicate Israel over and against all of her oppressors. These are people who now have lived in some form or another, really, for, with thousands of years of oppression. At one time, they were under a bondage. They were slaves of the Egyptians. And of course, the story of the Exodus is how God raises Israel up out of Egypt and he delivers his people only so that ultimately they'll be enslaved by the Babylonians and they'll go through 70 years of Babylonian rule and captivity and be under the thumb of the Babylonians only to later be under the regime of the Persians who conquered the Babylonians only to hundreds of years later The Roman Empire rises to power and now it is the Roman Empire that rules over them. Now it is the Roman Empire that enslaves them. It's the Roman Empire that mistreats them. It's the Roman Empire that uh, is in charge of all their holy sites and they feel like visitors in their own homeland. It's, It's all started all over again. The Romans are oppressive and especially in this context, we get these hints all throughout the Gospels. So many people... Um, various disciples of Jesus, you think about especially somebody like Peter, who was a zealot, have a particular expectation that when the Messiah comes, he's going to engineer a revolt against the Roman Empire. Uh, the, The promise in the Old Testament is that God ultimately is going to illuminate Israel and show her light to the nations. And I'm convinced that what happens over many, many generations, now track with me here, is that that promise starts to get smaller and smaller for them. Here's the I don't mean to beat around the bush. Here's the question. Does Jesus actually redeem Israel? I've never taken seriously that question. Does he redeem Israel? Of course, in a way, as a Christian, my answer is going to be, yes, well, yeah, Jesus redeems Israel because Jesus redeems anybody, right? Jesus redeems everybody who, who says yes to him. But here's the thing. Jesus does come to redeem Israel. But he doesn't come to redeem Israel in the way that they thought. He doesn't come to redeem Israel in the way that they hoped for. I mean, they're looking for someone who's going to engineer an overthrow of the Roman government. And I think, I just think there's something that happens, especially when people are oppressed and battered over times. The promise, and this is really the, the hinge on which the whole story of Scripture rests. The promise that God made to Abraham in the Old Testament. He said, Abraham... I'm going to make you great. I'm going to make your family great. I'm going to make your name great. Y'all remember, Father Abraham, many sons. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody go to Sunday school? Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. Right arm, left arm, <laughs> nod your head, spin around, et etc. Et father Abraham, father of many sons, father of many daughters. But do you remember where that promise lands? What God says to Abraham there in Genesis 11, Abraham, ultimately through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That was the covenant, is that what God was going to do through Abraham, through Abraham's lineage, through Israel, would ultimately be so all the families of the earth will be blessed. I'm not trying to like cut through a major sophisticated theological dilemma in seconds like it's simple, but this does feel a little more simple to me than a lot of people make it. I know a lot of people think that God chooses some people before time, and some people are going up, and some people are going down, and God loves some, and uh, damns others, uh, uh, you know, like from, from before time, like we're pieces on a chessboard. Some people God likes, and he's going after, and some people that he's not. It, it totally misreads what, going all the way back to the Old Testament, what election, what God calling people is about? God elects Abraham, he chooses Abraham for the sake of the whole world. God chooses one man and one family for the sake of all families. Anything good that God ever did for Israel ultimately was for the sake of the world. It wasn't that Israel was his chosen pet, I'm gonna gonna give you, lavish you with all the attention, but I hate everybody else. Forget them, that's never the idea. The the movement of the story was always gonna be that through Israel, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Sometimes I say things and sound like Yoda and I don't mean to. But the way my friend Chris Green puts it sometimes, God chooses the elect for the sake of the (laughs) non-elect. So the people that God especially chooses or calls, it's not about salvation, some are saved and some are not. Election's about a calling to be a light so that others might be drawn. That's where the story was always going. But, I hope this is going to make some sense to somebody. By the time they've lived under these hundreds of years of oppression, I'm convinced that no longer... Are they capable of holding this giant faith that says the covenant that God made to us as a people is so big and so vast that through us, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. I'm convinced that hope has gotten small and narrow and tribalistic. The best that we can hope for is that God will vindicate us against our enemies. God will show us to be right and the Romans to be wrong. And will be vindicated. That's what their hope has been reduced down to. And so here's what I want to contend. And I don't know how you're going to feel about this, but this is what I've come to really believe. I'm convinced that people often hit a faith crisis in their life in their life in some way, or in their lives. They come to this moment where they feel like things are unraveling. They come to this moment where what was once a simple cookie cutter, childlike faith, where everything was easy and neat and clean, utterly unravels. And when that happens. It feels like you're going to die, because in a way you are. It feels like your life is falling apart, because in a way it is. Man, when you feel like that somehow you've been betrayed by the church, or you've been let down by God himself, when you feel disappointed by the Almighty in some way, when you get disillusioned, there's nothing nothing more, more rattling than that. And yet here's what I really think. I think the truth is, a lot of us need to have our faith disillusioned. We need to have our old way of thinking about God disrupted. But I think all too often our faith system just gets too small. It becomes about me and mine. It becomes about my tribe and my people. And when our faith gets too small, it's not necessarily the devil that disrupts it. It's not necessarily like some random thing. I truly believe sometimes it is nothing less than the Spirit of God that wants us to be disappointed, that wants us to be disillusioned so that we can be broken open to a bigger, wider, broader faith. Do you hear what I'm saying? Because, I, again, don't I, I think not, you're not sure. That's fine. <laughs> Let me try it this way. See, in a way, it was true that God was going to come to redeem Israel. Of course. But here's what these disciples were not prepared for before they were disillusioned. God wasn't just coming to redeem Israel. God was coming after Gentiles. God forbid he was coming to save Romans too. God was not just coming to save the oppressed people. God was coming to redeem the oppressors. God was gonna raise up (laughs) this movement in the shadow of the Roman Empire, where, where the very people who had oppressed, people like Paul, who, who were oppressing Christians, and now get to become an apostle in the church? What is that? See, that does not when you're still in that small tribalistic faith, that doesn't sound like good news. That does not sound awesome. We, but we thought was, God was coming to rescue us. <laughs> and God comes along, oh yeah, well I am coming to rescue us, but I'm also coming after them. <laughs> I'm also coming after your enemies, the people that you don't want, I I love them just as much as I love you. Their faith had gotten too small. Here's all I'm trying to say. Even before Jesus was crucified, Jesus was never going to come and redeem Israel in the way that they were looking for. And I'm just trying to say that for some of you that feel disillusioned right now, and it's a pretty rocky time in culture, don't you think? For all the things we can't agree about, could we maybe maybe agree on that? It's sort of a tenuous time right now, right? But see, that's, that's the thing that brings me such hope, is that I know that it's exactly in those times of disillusionment and despair and discouragement when old systems are broken. Ecclesiastical systems are broken. Religious systems are broken. Political systems are broken. All these, all this machinery that's kind of held us up and undergirded us—all that stuff seems to like be wobbling in some way. It is precisely in those kinds of tense, vulnerable moments that God walks alongside us, and precisely in that disillusionment and despair, there is the opportunity now where we might actually imagine this: be surprised by God again. We might be surprised by the Holy Spirit. God might do something unexpected. God might do something we weren't looking for. I don't know if anybody's feeling this right now. And I have lost complete track of time, I just realized. Let's see, we started at 10. Okay, I think I'm still okay. Let me read just a little bit further though, because I could talk about that part all day. You know, so they're saying, we thought he was the one who was gonna redeem Israel. All our hopes and dreams. Verse 22, but moreover, Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them, the things about himself and all the scriptures. I'd love to talk about that, but I'm going to drive about for right now because just for time's sake. Let's go a little bit further. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. I just want to throw this out there for anybody who thought I'm stretching the text a little bit to say that Jesus is punking the disciples and that this is supposed to be funny what do you do with this it says he walked ahead as if he were going on let's do a quick little exegesis of the phrase as if what does that tell you he acted like he was going to keep going and had no intention of going on it's playful Jesus is having a good time with him He's hearing all their deep despair and darkness because of this terrible news about his own death. And he's playful here. I love there's something about Jesus that's so tender, so full of mischief and so playful. I just love that. He acts like he's going to keep going. He clearly does not really intend to do this. And yet I think this is so beautiful. Verse 29, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us because it's almost evening and the day is now nearly over. What moves me about that, about this text in this moment, I don't know if I've ever quite felt that as heavy as I do right now. I think it's so just so wonderful. They haven't yet recognized that this is Jesus. They don't know who he is, but they do know that as they're talking to this man, they feel something hot starting to happen on the inside. Something's shifting. Something's changing. They don't know what it is. They don't know what's happening to them. They don't know who he is. They don't have, um, they don't all of a sudden now have the doctrine of resurrection. There is not yet an Apostles' Creed or a Nicene Creed or whatever else. All they know is that in this place of despair and desolation, when this stranger came along and is talking to them, something inside them says, yes, can I get a little bit more of that? Would, would you stay just a little bit longer? Would you please not leave just yet? That's part of what I love so much about God. You know, he, he'll walk with you on any road. He'll walk with you on the road away from church. God, another Yoda-like saying, you know, I don't mean to do that, God will walk with you on the road away from God. That's true. Jesus will walk with you on the, way, on the road away from Jesus. If that sounds theologically scandalous to you, let me remind you, of just how far back this goes. David said, even if I make my bed in hell, you are there. If I take on the wings in the morning and fly to the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand is with me. Where can I go? Where can I flee from your presence? God is everywhere in all places and all times. That, you know, I think that's how a lot of us end up coming to faith, actually, is at some point you just come to a place in your moment in your life where it's like, ah, I can't outrun this. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Like to where maybe like you didn't have this glamorous conversion. It was just more like, oh man, I'm I'm just tired of trying to escape this love that stalks me wherever I go. God is going to be there no matter where I go, no matter what I do. It's like God's always there in the bushes being creepy. Like, fine, just come in, just come in. (laughs) And it's like almost an act of resignation. Fine, all right, sure. You know, because you can't escape the love of God. You cannot. It's prodigal church, y'all. What, 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 what does anybody learn from a prodigal season except you can never outrun his outrageous love? You just can't do it. I got so caught up in this, I forgot what I was talking about. I was going somewhere that seemed really significant at the time. <laughs> Jesus says he, he's been right there all along. He's on the road with them. You can't escape his love. So God will walk with you with or without your consent, but there is something to that moment where you say, stay with me, doesn't have to be just the right prayer, doesn't have to be, man, this is something, I'm I'm all for doctrine, but this is something deeper than doctrine. I'm talking about that when your soul says yes, and the very moment that you just start to yield. You know that old cliche, we use that a lot in the South, that if you give the, the devil an inch, he'll take a mile. Have you heard this saying before? Okay, if you think that's true about the devil, Let me tell you how much more so that's true about Jesus. Man, you you crack the shades just a little bit. You give him just a little bit of room. (laughs) I mean, just be prepared. Because the very moment that you say, yes, oh, he's so present, he's so ready. Jesus, who acted as if he were still going to keep on walking, but never intended. Yes, of course, of course, I'll stay with you. So we'll read just a little bit further. They urged him strongly, saying, stay with this, because the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And in verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and he gave it to them. And I love verse 31. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road? While he was opening the scriptures to us, I promise I'm landing very quickly now. But um, you know, part of what's so beautiful about this passage to me, they have this moment when their eyes are opened. It's not until he breaks the bread. The words didn't do it, doctrine didn't do it. Something in the physical act of breaking the bread they recognize. And I could do a whole sermon, that'll be an, but that'll be for another time. Y'all will have me back. Look, I'm inviting myself back right now. <laughs> Pastor, please. No. But, but I do believe there's a unique way that God makes himself known through communion. There's a unique way that Christ is revealed to us. But that's another sermon for another time. They have this moment where all of a sudden their eyes are opened. And friends, this is the thing I want to leave you with. This is the invitation I would want to offer even at the end of this message. You know, I think so often, especially when we're in a dark place, and we're on a a road of despair, we want God to do a miracle, to, to zap us out, get me off of this Emmaus road, take me someplace better, just beam me up, Scotty, get me out of here, I just want to escape. But so often what happens is that the way that God meets us, when God touches us, when we have an encounter with the Holy Spirit, it doesn't... It's not that something new or different happens so much, it's just that our eyes are opened to where the world that we saw the day before, it just looks different. Because now we can see Jesus in the midst. Do you hear what I'm saying? Circumstances haven't necessarily changed. A lot of things still kinda suck and are hard. But now all of a sudden, ooh, but I can see Jesus here now. I can see love at work now. This place that I thought was hopeless, th- there's hope in the midst of this now. In some ways, the external circumstances of your life may look entirely the same, and yet it is like you've got a whole different set of glasses on, you see things you couldn't have seen before. <laughs> now, oh, I, this has never hit me before this moment, and I'm about to shout right now, because you remember my roots, I apologize. <laughs> now they can look back on that road that they were walking that they, when they thought they were in... Desolation, despair, and they look back. Oh, Jesus was walking that road with us the whole time. He was always there. I just didn't know it. He was always with me. I just didn't recognize him. How everything turns upside down just in our moment of recognition. The world doesn't necessarily change, but our perspective on it changes so dramatically. Now what's fun about this, really I really am trying to be done, but what's funny about this because again, I do think Jesus is hilarious, intentionally, is that the very moment that they see him, he vanishes. Boy, isn't that awesome. A moment of revelation. He's here. Christ is with us. You're resurrected. And he's gone. Can I just tell you something about how God works? Some of you have found this out experientially. This is going to ring true with some of you especially growing up the way that i did where a lot of emphasis on encounters with god which don't think is great right but whenever i had any kind of experience of jesus that was open and conspicuous i always thought i've hit a whole new level i am never going to see things the same way again i'm never going to feel differently than i am in this moment right here right now jesus is always going to be this clear to me i will always see the world through grace healed eyes. i can never go back and then it is just like Jesus that the moment you recognize him it seems like he vanishes I I, I saw him, I know I saw him, I know it was real and yet now he's not present in quite the same way that he was before. Friends, there's something about that that is the very nature of the life of faith we have moments of clarity, we have moments of revelation, we have moments where the veil is thin between us and the mystery and when that happens, praise God, it's awesome, thank you Jesus That is very rock and roll, but it doesn't stay like that forever. Doesn't stay like that for anybody. Doesn't matter how much you pray, and I hope you do pray, I hope you have good spiritual disciplines, but I'm telling you, uh, actually the experience works opposite. Sometimes people, the closer they get to God, sometimes they can go longer and longer stretches and not conspicuously feel his presence. But it doesn't make the experience less real. In fact, that's what I love, and I am really done on this. In that moment when he vanishes, they say, my. Didn't our hearts burn within us while he opened up the scriptures? Maybe he's not always that tangible. Maybe it doesn't always feel like you can reach out and touch him, but you're left with this burning heart. Something in here that makes you burn. Something in here that makes you yearn for God. Something in here that makes you come back for more. Something that makes you come back to church again the next Sunday together with the people of God again. Something that makes you want to crack your Bible again. Because you know you may not experience him quite like this every time. But if you keep showing up somewhere, sometime, once again, your eyes are going to be opened for a revelation of who he is. Stand with me or I will just do this all day. I need to pray for you.
0: I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Like an LP, each episode is divided into side A and side B. Side A could be a sermon, a conversation with a guest, but we'll always introduce some idea. Side B will always be a creative exploration of that idea through music, question answering with listeners, or quirky rabbit trails off of side A for people who want the deep cuts, not just the singles. No matter who you are or where you come from, we hope this podcast will be a resource in helping you come to know the love that calls you by your true name. For more, go to JonathanMartinWords.com and sign up for our email list. Have a good day.